from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Colonel Thursday, I gave my word to Cochise. No man is going to make a liar out of me, sir. That's John Wayne, of course, in one of the many westerns he made with the director John Ford. There's no question of honor, sir, between an American officer and Cochise. There is to me, sir. Together, Ford and John Wayne, they kind of have to say his whole name, made more than a dozen films and created this archetypal persona. Much more than just a movie cowboy, John Wayne came to represent an idea of American masculinity, an ideal to which lots of men aspired. But as really masterful as many of Ford's John Wayne Westerns are, 60 and 70 and 80 years later, there are also troubling aspects to some. So what should we here in the 21st century make of them? Which brings us to the latest installment in our American Icon series. It's about one of the best of those John Ford movies starring John Wayne, which shows both men at the height of their powers and at their most problematic. Here is producer Arun Venegapal. I was, I suspect, among the last generation of American children to play cowboys and Indians. I was an Indian kid growing up in Texas, but the other kind of Indian, we'd say almost apologetically. My dad, the Indian immigrant, watched westerns on TV. He was a fan of the show Bonanza. But I never got it. In the 1970s, even kids like me, who played with fake tomahawks and wore feather headdresses without the slightest inhibition, didn't watch westerns. Their heyday had come and gone. In fact, I don't think I watched a single western until I was well into adulthood, in the late 90s. The film was John Ford's magnum opus, The Searchers, from 1956. And I've been thinking about it and fretting over it ever since. So The Searchers is considered the kind of the greatest of the golden era of Hollywood westerns. In 1959, Jean-Luc Godard, you know, the famous new wave French director and Cahiers de Cinema, wrote about it in glowing terms and compared it to Homer's The Odyssey. It's widely regarded as one of the most magnificent Hollywood movies and indeed movies of any kind or country of origin ever made. In 2008, the American Film Institute named The Searchers the greatest Western. Entertainment Weekly said the same thing. On Rotten Tomatoes, it gets a 100% rating with critics. Stephen Metcalf is the host of Slate's Culture Gab Fest podcast and its critic at large. It's been a well of creative inspiration that great filmmakers have gone back to over and over and over again. Filmmakers like Steven Spielberg. I try to run a John Ford film, one or two, before I start every movie. I have to look at The Searchers, have to, almost every time. Star Wars owes a huge debt to The Searchers. Aren't you a little short for a stormtrooper? Huh? Oh, the uniform. I'm Luke Skywalker. I'm here to rescue you. The Searchers was directed by John Ford and came out in 1956. It begins with one of the most memorable opening shots in film history. 
in which the pitch black screen gives way to a frame within a frame. From the interior of a home, we see the darkened silhouette of a woman standing within a doorway, looking out, away from us. Nancy Schoenberger is the author of Wayne and Ford, the films, the friendship, and the forging of an American hero. And what's on the other side of that door is this vast landscape. Filled with mesas rising up in the brilliant light of the desert. And you see a figure riding in from the vast landscape. Ethan? It gives you the sense that we are really watching something mythic here with these fantastic mesas and buttes. That's your Uncle Ethan. This is Texas, 1868. The man is Ethan Edwards, played by John Wayne. He's a hulking, mysterious figure who's returned to his brother's homestead after years away. He wears gray, Confederate gray, and he carries money, ill-gotten gains. But for a moment at least, we enjoy the reunion. Ethan with his brother and his sister-in-law, Martha, who is clearly in love with Ethan. And of course, the kids. In the eyes of the director, John Ford, no matter what life on the frontier is like outside, inside there's a simple sentimental beauty marked by warmth and laughter. But of course, the serenity doesn't last for long. Ethan and the others go out to investigate a cattle theft before realizing it's all just a ruse. Stealing the cattle was just to pull us out. This is a murder raid. The men rush back home, but by the time they arrive, it's too late. Everything's on fire. Martha, Ethan's beloved sister-in-law, has been raped by the Comanche, and she's dead. As is her husband Aaron, Ethan's brother, and their son Ben. But the two daughters, Lucy and young Debbie, are missing. They've been abducted by a sinister Comanche chief known as Scar. Just one reason we're here, ain't it? That's to find Debbie and Lucy? If they're still alive. And as the following scenes unfold, we understand how the film gets its name. Ethan and his adopted nephew, Martin, set out on a quest, a search, that will last years. Will they manage to find Lucy or Debbie? And what will happen if they do? It's a stark narrative, but Ford rarely spoke of his work in grand philosophical terms. To him, movies were entertainment. In The Searchers, you get slapstick fight scenes, riveting cowboy and engine battles, broad racial caricatures, and dance sequences. Years after making The Searchers, John Ford was interviewed by a French journalist. Well, the Western is the best type of picture. It's action, but you have horses moving, you have movement, you have background, scenery, color, and that's why they're interesting. And I think most of our best pictures are Western. But one of many reasons why the film resonated to the extent it did, at least with critics, is because of the single-minded, Ahab-like intensity of Ethan's quest. Do you think maybe there's a chance we still might find her? Engine will chase a thing till he thinks he's chased it enough. And he quits. Same way when he runs. Seems like he never learns there's such a thing as a critter will just keep coming on. So we'll find him in the end. Just as sure as a turning of the earth. More than anything else, one could argue The Searchers is about sex, which is to say the fear of it. Early in their quest, Ethan and Martin discover that the older of the two sisters is dead. That leaves just one, Debbie, played by Natalie Wood, who's out there, 
somewhere. She's alive, she's safe. For a while, they'll keep her to raise as one of their own until, until she's of an age to... What John Wayne alluded to just briefly in that little speech at the beginning is the fact that over time she will grow and come of age, which means she will become a woman and become the wife of a Comanche. Glenn Frankel is the author of The Searchers, The Making of an American Legend, and spoke to the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. She will have sex with Indians, and this sort of psychosexual element to the story is what drives it forward because as time goes on, the uncle makes the decision that he's not going to try to rescue her to restore her to the family, but he's actually thinking of killing her because she's been violated. She's she's crossed that line. She's suffered a fate worse than death. And this is the twist that defines the searchers. The character of Ethan Edwards, as played by John Wayne, has no intention of saving his niece. He's more interested in saving whiteness by killing her. Ford never tries to sugarcoat Ethan's character. And as director Martin Scorsese explains it in an interview with the American Film Institute, we're often reminded of Ethan's brutality. You really get his character in the moment when uh, they unearth a a grave of a a dead Indian. And there's some disagreement, they're discussing, they're arguing, and suddenly Ethan Edwards says, let's finish the job, do it right. Why don't you finish the job? Twirls out his gun and fires twice, shooting out the eyes of the dead Indian. What good did that do you? By what you preach, none. But what that Comanche believes, ain't got no eyes, he can't enter the spirit land, has to wander forever between the winds. Uh, So in a sense, what he's doing, he hates so much that he hates beyond the grave, that he doesn't want to give him the peace of his paradise. You know, he wants to kill the soul of, of these people. Ethan's hatred of the Comanche is something so great that it worries even his own family. He'll find her now, Martin, honest, he will. That's what I'm afraid of, Laurie. Him finding her. Oh, I've seen his eyes at the very word Comanche. I've seen him take his knife and... That's Martin, who Ethan had found as a baby, orphaned, and who was raised by Ethan's brother and family. But years later, Ethan only has contempt for him. Well, I could mistake you for a half-breed. Um, not quite. I'm eighth Cherokee, and the rest is Welsh and English. The racism takes different shapes. Sometimes it's explicit and violent, and sometimes it's meant to be funny. During their travels, Ethan and Martin are briefly joined by a third character, a heavyset Native American woman. Somehow, in a comic turn, she's been won by Martin. You didn't buy any blanket. You bought her. You got yourself a wife, Sonny. (laughs) She's his accidental bride. And although she doesn't speak his language and he doesn't speak hers, she is clearly smitten. Martin finds this absolutely infuriating. And when she tries to snuggle up next to him at night, he jumps up (laughs) and kicks her down a hill. You know, that's grounds for divorce in Texas. (laughs) The scene is played for laughs. The first time I saw The Searchers, this was the one thing that stayed with me. I was so troubled by it. John Ford was even asked about this years later. Why are they beaten by men? Why are they being punished? Who? Women. Women. Where? In your pictures. Oh, the audience is like it. He was a showman above all else. But for Martin Scorsese and other fans of the film, The Searchers was a window onto life. Not just life on the frontier, but contemporary American society. He just literally acts out the racism, the worst aspects of racism of our country. And he just shows us the worst part of ourselves that's coming out of the late 40s, early 50s. 
He just brings it right up to the surface. So I have to deal with it. I watched it over and over and over again because I've probably seen this film 50 times, man. I can probably articulate every scene in this movie. Sam Pollard is a documentary filmmaker who teaches at NYU. After watching it for so many years, I see how complicated it is in terms of issues of race, in terms of issues of masculinity and gender. John Ford, in his character of Ethan, basically paints a very complicated brush of a man who's a misogynist and a racist. You know, John Ford knew what he was doing. Pollard and I watched the scene together. This is the moment when Ethan and his traveling companion of many years, Martin, finally encounter Debbie in the desert. She's dressed in Native American clothes. It's kind of a blast to watch movies with Sam Pollard, even ones he's seen 50 times. It's your brother Martin. Debbie. I come to take you home. Debbie, don't you remember? I'm Martin, I'm Martin. Don't you remember me, Debbie? <laughs> I'm always. And she says, Martin, I, I waited for you. you. I prayed for you to come, come Martin. <laughs> I love this movie. And then, just as Martin is reconnecting with his long-lost sister, the one he spent years of his life searching for, Ethan draws his gun and aims it right at her. Stand aside, Martin. He's bent on an honor killing. Nancy Schoenberger. And it's really terrifying to see the depth and, and the passion of his hatred and his hatred of the Comanches. Schoenberger says she asked filmmaker and John Ford obsessive Peter Bogdanovich a central question about the character of Ethan. Well, why do we even care about him when he is so frightening a figure? And his response was, because it's John Wayne. You can't not like John Wayne. He brought the goodwill of his earlier movies. And of course, I don't want to do a spoiler alert here, but I will. The very end of the movie, he does redeem himself. And this is how. After their initial close encounter with Debbie, Martin and Ethan are chased off by Comanche warriors connected to the evil Chief Scar. But they eventually return, and with the cavalry close by, descend upon a Comanche village. Ethan rides in and finds his nemesis, Chief Scar, inside a teepee. He's already dead, presumably from a stray bullet, but that doesn't stop Ethan from scalping his corpse. Then, on horseback, he bears down on Debbie. She runs in terror from him, and in vain. No, Ethan! No! But at the moment when Ethan is expected to finally kill her, he relents. Let's go home, Debbie. Instead of murdering Debbie and maintaining his idea of racial purity, he holds her in his arms, high up in the air. And then they go home. I can see why the searchers was canonized, because it documented the unmitigated hatred of this one white man during an era, the 1950s, when the dominant culture was so white and so patriarchal. But more importantly, because it suggested that even the worst, most racist white guy can be saved, that he is deep down a good guy. Having experienced a change of heart, he simply leaves the homestead behind one last time and walks off into the sunset. So, you know, the standard line about the Western is that the actual Western frontier of the United States closed right around 1890. And the idea that, you know, our Westering spirit, that the restless would always be able to go further West and start anew, was done with. And it's at exactly that moment that the Western dime novel becomes a popular genre. And out of those dime novels comes the cowboy operas or, you know, horse operas of the B picture. And out of those comes Ford and Wayne. 
And the idea is that this is a highly mythic, highly nostalgic idea of America and an America that's been lost, against which masculinity tests itself by rescuing wilderness from the savages. Meaning, of course, from Native Americans. You might think the idea of the savage Indian had been around forever, or at least since the time of first contact with Europeans. But in the movies, it only developed during the 1930s, according to the documentary Real Injun. This was when the country, meaning white America, was looking for a new kind of hero, and John Ford and John Wayne were instrumental in that process, with the first film they collaborated on. Stagecoach is the iconic Western. It's the Western that all others were really modeled uh, after, and it's one of the most damaging movies for Native people in history. Ojibwe film critic Jesse Wente. You have white society inside a stagecoach, and they are besieged on all sides by Native people, by the wild of America. Those that are stopping progress, those that are backwards, those that are vicious and bloodthirsty. Stagecoach summed up and gave the opinion of Native people for decades to the populace in the U.S. That's how they thought of us, and it's because of John Ford that they thought of us like that. The Searchers, released 17 years after Stagecoach, is often positioned as the right kind of Western because it concedes that white people can be savage in their own right. But here's the thing. Ethan's character is granted agency. He makes choices. For whatever reason, he chooses not to kill Debbie. That same agency isn't extended to his Comanche enemy, Scar, who's killed off-screen. Scar was played by Henry Brandon, born Heinrich von Kleinbach, a white guy in brownface or redface. I took my wife to see this movie at the, at the public theater years ago. Sam Pollard. And all she could say was, this is the most racist movie I've ever seen. I don't know how you could watch this film. And I told her, you're absolutely right. I grew up in the West, and I look at the Western, and I know that it's probably the best propaganda movie ever made, meaning it allows us to root for the manifest destiny of the settlers or the colonizers and to defeat Native people. Chris Ayer is Southern Cheyenne and Arapaho, and the director of the film Smoke Signals. The only thing more damaging to Native people over the past 120 years than the Bible was cinema. That has been the lot of Native people in movies, which is romantic that Native people die so that the real people, the settlers, can actually prosper. It's not just the Native characters in The Searchers. We're left to wonder about Debbie, too, who was captured by the Comanche at a young age, then returned to white civilization. How does she feel about that? The film doesn't ask. He wants to kill her for surviving for the language she spits. But Tracy K. Smith does. She's the U.S. Poet Laureate, and years ago, she wrote a poem simply called The Searchers. It's written from Debbie's perspective. The way she runs, clutching her skirt, as if life pools there. Instead, he grabs her, puts her on his saddle, rides back into town, where faces she barely remembers smile into her fear with questions, and the wish, the impossible wish, to forget. What does living do to any of us? Tracy K. Smith thinks the film still serves a purpose, 
but with a big fat asterisk. When it's screened, movie theaters should follow it with community discussions, like some theaters do with another racially problematic movie, Gone with the Wind. It definitely requires a talkback session. <laughs> I think it's a film that we need to talk about. Uh, we can't just take everything at face value. You know, I think it, it touches on too much that still hurts and on too much that affirms perspectives that are willfully blind to the realities of contemporary Native American life. Stephen Metcalf isn't so generous. Like me, he thinks that the movies and the Western's fixation with great white men means that The Searchers is no longer relevant. What people struggling on behalf of women's rights, gay rights, and the rights of people of color need right now aren't for the white heroes to step in and be white heroes again. And if we're going to give enormous amounts of credit to movies that were exploitative of such people by saying, well, they're actually winking at us or they actually have a layer of ambivalence or ambiguity to them. You're leaving intact white men as the heroes who are going to rescue us. I don't think we need to be rescued by John Wayne. Arun Venegapal of WNYC produced our story. He's the creator of WNYC's Micropolis series on race and identity. Special thanks to Lauren Francis for production assistance and to Wayne Schulmeister, who engineered the segment. This and other American Icon stories are funded by the National Endowment for the Humanities. Everybody knows the Red Scare stymied and sometimes ruined the show business careers of a bunch of liberals and lefties. But Professor Carol Stabile thinks that it set TV back years by silencing women. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. On today's show, we're looking at how a certain traditionalist vision of America really coalesced in mid-20th century culture and sometimes became weaponized. We proclaim ourselves indeed as we are, the defenders of freedom wherever it continues to exist in the world. But we cannot defend freedom abroad by deserting it at home. Good night and good luck. That's David Strathairn playing the celebrated mid-century TV newsman, Edward R. Murrow, in Good Night and Good Luck, nominated for six Academy Awards in 2006. It's one of several latter-day big-deal movies about heroes of the Red Scare in the late 1940s and 50s, men who stood up against the hysterical anti-communism propagated by Joe McCarthy and his cohorts. The blacklisting of writers and performers accused of being commie sympathizers. That is how the story's been told. But actually, it's only half the story. Because there were dozens of women blacklisted as well. University of Oregon professor Carol Stabile's new book, The Broadcast 41, is about 41 women of the left working in TV and radio, targeted by the blacklists. And what lots of people don't realize is that it all began with a literal list this extraordinary pamphlet that also started you, Carol, down this path to your book. So explain what Red Channels was. 
Red Channels was a report of communist influence in radio and television, and it was a special publication, they called it, of a group called the American Business Consultants. And they would list the names of all the people who, in their opinion, had proved less than 100 percent American in their view or were otherwise suspected of being subversive. And so um, they used that list of names to smear people and to start really ramping up um, anti-communist activities in broadcasting. In June 1950, they published Red Channels. And Red Channels was quickly used by people in the anti-communist movement, um, especially the American Legion, the the Veterans Veterans Organization, Organization, to start campaigns to get people removed from television shows. The, The people organizing it were mostly or many of them were former FBI agents? Yeah, that's right. The three men who founded the American Business Consultants um, were all former agents. At the end of World War II, as intelligence agencies downsized, a lot of these men left the Bureau or military intelligence to work in the burgeoning Cold War security industry. And these three men did just that. People in the industry called it the smear and clear business because it was clear that what they were doing was setting out to ruin people's reputations and then to charge people money to clear their names. Really? And it was that explicitly corrupt? It was that explicitly corrupt. J. Edgar Hoover was actually very angry at these agents because he thought that they had stolen a number of files from the FBI in order to set up their clearance business. So the relationship between the Bureau and and the American business consultants at the beginning was very acrimonious. They basically worked in terms of the smearing part and pressuring the entertainment industry through, as you say, in broadcasting, through threat of advertising dollars, right? The, The sponsors were easier to scare. Right. First of all, they would publish the names in their own publication. And then they would go to the sponsors or in some cases the networks um, and say, look, this person's a communist. We proved it in our our publication. Um, And so now you need to hire us, first of all, to make sure that you don't have other communists who are employed by by your business. And second of all, so we can clear the talent so you can continue to use them. Uh Uh-huh. Your stories about these women are, are really fascinating to me because I, I didn't really consider any of them as, oh, these were political people, right? Mm-hmm. They were just, oh, you know, uh, Judy Holliday, for instance. Right. Uh, to my mind, the great uh, comic actress of the 1940s and early 50s. Mm-hmm. Here she is with William Holden in uh, Born Yesterday from 1950. Nobody's born smart, Billy. You know what the stupidest thing on earth is? An infant. Well, you gotta get babies all of a sudden. Nothing. I've got nothing against a brain that's three weeks old and empty. But after it hangs around for 30 years and hasn't absorbed anything, I begin to wonder about it. What makes you think I'm 30? I didn't mean you. Oh, yes, you did. I swear. You certainly know how to get me sore. I'm sorry. 30? Do I look 30 to you? No. But what'd you say for? I don't know. How old are you? 29. So, she was political? Funny Judy? Yeah, she was actually very political. And as you point out, she was such a tremendous comic actress, but always struggled against the ways in which she was being boxed in in the industry. Um, But she came from a very political family. Her uncle was um, a Yiddish language newspaper writer. Um, She testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee. She was coached very carefully about her appearance before the House Un-American Activities Committee. I think that the word was, play the dumb blonde for all it's worth. Which which she played often on screen. 
Yeah, which she hated. Yeah. Right? She was very narrowly typecast. Sure. And that was a source of great frustration to right. her. So uh, she's blacklisted. She, she makes it through the HUAC uh, testimony, even though she doesn't give any names of communists. Right. Um, uh, doesn't go to jail. And she kept working, right? Yeah, she did keep working. Um, but I'm imagining that there aren't that many people who remember Judy Holliday. Uh, man, she's, she's one of the great ones. Another of the women in your uh, book is the great Ruth Gordon, uh, of whom I first became aware of when she appeared uh, 20 years after Red Channels as a 70-ish woman in Harold and Maude. That little treat trouble. Come on. Look at it. Oh, it's suffocating. Well, it's the smog. You know, people can live with it, but trees, it gives them asthma. They can't breathe. But leaves, look, they're turning brown. Harold, we have got to do something about this life. What? We've transplanted it to the forest. You can't do that. Why not? This is public property. Well, exactly. That's Ruth Gordon and Bud Court in Harold and Maude in 1971. I remember when that came out. It was a revelation for lots of people to discover this fantastic old actress. Where'd she been? But in fact, as you describe in in the book, she had a successful career as an actress starting in the silent pictures and then in the 1940s wrote Oscar-nominated films with her husband, Garson Kanan, before she was blacklisted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they, they wrote um, for a number of Tracy Hepburn vehicles. Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy. Yeah, so Adam's Rib and Pat and Mike. But she had been a writer for a long time. So uh, she's blacklisted. Uh, what happened to her? Gordon, like Holiday, um, and like a lot of other women who wound up on the blacklist, went back to theater. And so she mostly worked on stage throughout the 1950s and into the 1960s when she picked up the roles in Rosemary's Baby and later in Harold and Maude. So the negative impact of it was that people like this were really prevented from moving into television. And Gordon's papers show that, you know, she was really interested in moving into television because I can, I can you, imagine. Could, you could actually make money. Yeah. And it meant that you had a better shot at getting some of the best roles on Broadway if people had already seen you on TV. So that route being shut down right. for them meant that... Um, they may do, but they were never the successes they could have been. And I, I'd never thought as much as I had when I when I read your book about th- the fact that theater, New York theater and Broadway, w- were pretty much exempt from the blacklist Red Scare thing. Right? That was it was like a free zone. No, it was it, in in so many ways. Writing this book reminded me that it was a sanctuary for progressive writers and for progressives in media industry because its economic model wasn't amenable to the kinds of pressure. Right. No advertising. Um, right. Yeah. So another person you write about is Gypsy Rose Lee, who is best known now as the title character for the Broadway musical Gypsy based on her memoir about her show business upbringing and life or her stage mother becoming a stripper. Starting now, honey, everything's coming up roses. And in the supposedly super square 1950s and early 60s, she was this funny mainstream celebrity on, on TV, on, on game shows and talk shows. Yeah, Gypsy Rosalie is such an interesting figure in the the history of um, of media. Um, she was also um, a successful novelist. 
in the 1940s, she published a novel called The G-String Murders. It's a, it's a really, really smart piece of writing. She was a painter. And that's the thing that struck me about these women is that you couldn't just be an excellent person um, or an, an excellent writer or, or whatever in the 1950s if you're a woman and you wanted to be successful. You had to be stellar. Right. She was going to be the host of her own talk show. In 50. Right. Yeah, right. And she was very, very bright, very articulate. They funny. loved her. So super funny. Yeah. And uh, the American Legion started organizing against her, claiming that she was a member of the Communist Party. The FBI was spreading rumors that she had in the 1930s or 1940s been carrying this pocketbook full of communist propaganda that she would thrust upon people at every occasion. Communist stripper subverting (laughs) America's men. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So they spent much of the summer organizing and putting pressure on advertisers, sponsors, and networks to get her removed. She just signed a contract for a talk show, and by the fall yeah. of that year, she was off the air. And and that that was something that didn't come around again for right. a lot of these women, right? right? If you think about um, actress Hazel Scott, who right. is the first African American woman to have her own variety show, right? Which I didn't even know about. I mean, I'd heard of I knew Hazel Scott as a musician. Right. In fact, here here she is uh, singing uh, "The Man I Love." Come along, the man I love, and he'll be big and strong, the man I love, and when he comes my way, I'll do my best. That's the singer Hazel Scott, who was also an actress, who also, and and this makes more sense about her political involvement, was married to the great charismatic New York minister and politician, Adam Clayton Powell Jr. Um, what were her independent political activities like in the 40s and 50s? Well, um, Hazel Scott protested segregation in performances. She actually refused to perform as anyone but herself in Hollywood because she knew that that would give her control over her image. Um, she was worried that if someone else wrote a character for her, she would be forced to speak those words. Interesting. She was also part of a landmark civil rights lawsuit. She had been performing, I believe, in 1949 um, and was refused service at a, at a restaurant in, in Pasco, Washington, and so brought a lawsuit against the restaurant and won. And Hazel Scott testified before the House Un-American Activities Committee. Did that play well? Did that help clear her? No, it didn't. Um, And so her show goes on the air in July of 1950 and gets really, really wonderful critical reviews. Again, a black woman hosting a variety show in 1950 on television. Amazing. Right. Um, But what they say comes September, and the show is canceled two weeks after she appears before the House on American Activities Committee. Um, What they say is one of those, you know, sort of nebulous excuses that people made all the time. Well, you know, it it wasn't getting advertised. Right. Dollars, yeah, not a good right? cultural fit. Yeah. Um, she was a musician, so she could still pick up gigs, um, and she traveled a good bit in Europe. Um, she wound up moving to Paris and, and living there until around 1968. So I think she was one of the people who just found it really hard to get gigs right. in the United States after the blacklist. Right. Um, as you were looking at this history and, and chronicling it, did you imagine, like, what if the blacklist hadn't happened? Would we be different today as a result? 
I like to think so. I think that that's one of the reasons that, that the FBI paid so much attention to popular culture, is that even though people in the academy kind of looked down their noses at popular culture, I think that the Bureau knew how massive the influence of these images and representations was going to be. And so they, they took it really seriously. The FBI had their own very effective PR division that was reading popular culture, criticizing anything that kind of diverged from their vision of what it meant to be American men and women, um, and then retaliating against people who criticized their version of American identity. Um, I do think that these representations matter and mattered. Here is a group of people who are really thinking about how to make anti-racist popular culture in the 1940s and the 1950s. You know, there was a sense that when it came to representations that were progressive, things got stalled. Um, and things that might have happened in 1950 didn't happen until the late 1970s, no. right? Because Roots right. is, what, 1979? Right, 1977. And these, again, these were people who wanted to make culture that looked yeah. at that. And I think that eradicating that right. meant that the successive generations of women came up through industries and in climates that were really hostile. Right. Audiences, too, were denied the ability to to see these different cultures, to see these different perspectives for decades, principally because of the blacklist. Carol Stabile's new book is called The Broadcast 41, Women and the Anti-Communist Blacklist. Coming up... I am a black Muslim woman born and raised in New York City. I don't know a single person who is in the universe of a Hallmark movie. A prison reform activist's improbable connoisseurship of preakly Christmas movies. I love the anthropological whiteness of those films. Like, I'm pretty sure there are white people who live like that. I don't know any of those white people. Dreaming of an extremely white Christmas. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. This hour, we're looking at various attempts to promote a particular vision of America in culture. And old-fashioned, sentimental celebrations of straight white American traditionalism are also the subject of our latest installment of Guilty Pleasures. It's our series about the unexpected cultural passions that people have. Today, a prison reform activist from New York City. She tweets as at prison culture to 110,000 people who follow her for insights about fighting injustice and who every year around now get something completely different. People who start following me on social media, on Twitter or something, initially for my interest in politics... Once the Hallmark Channel thing comes, I'm like, what? What's going on here? My name is Miriam Kaba, and I'm a Hallmark Channel Christmas movie aficionado. I would say of my closest friends, I don't think anybody is a Hallmark Channel fan. I think people put up with me around it. Usually they've watched once or twice, and they're like, I just don't get it. Like, what is this? 
every year, the Hallmark Channel has something called Countdown to Christmas, which usually starts at the end of October, runs through the end of December, and literally dozens of movies are premiered during this period of time that are focused on Christmas and the holidays. The sweetest Christmas. Marry me at Christmas. Love you like Christmas. With love, Christmas. My Christmas love. Christmas in love. Part of Countdown to Christmas on Hallmark Channel. All of these Hallmark Christmas movies follow the same formula. The lead is a single white woman who maybe made a career for herself in the big city. I sent an email with the projected profit margins for the accounts big and small, and the numbers look great, Austin. You're too busy for love. You've just, your career has just taken over your life and you just haven't been able to find the time. I want to see you spend the holidays with someone, and I want that too. It's just... Dating takes time, and it's really distracting. Usually, that person is either super Christmassy and loves the holidays. I I grew up on a Christmas tree farm, and I was always Christmas crazy. Or hates the holidays. Well, I guess the kid in me has been too busy being an adult to get overly excited about Christmas. And is going to be transformed by the virtue of coming back home for the holidays. Merry Christmas, Mama. Oh, my goodness. She ends up coming to town. Who knows where, kind of nondescript America, her old high school boyfriend is in town. Hi, 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 Nick. Um, he's never left. Kylie Watson in my restaurant. There's often a kid who's like very cute and precocious. My dad, he hasn't been himself in a while. I just want him to be happy. There's always usually some ridiculous conflict. Well, what about the ice sculpture contest? That's Chef Gloria's turn. You could win and prove to Chef Gloria how talented you are in the process. The rules allow for teams of two. I need a partner. Who, me? They end up falling in love with each other predictably. I love you. I love you, too. The film ends with the two of them looking at the stars, kissing over the credits. I am a black Muslim woman, born and raised in New York City. I don't know a single person who is in the universe of a Hallmark movie. These are not people I work with. They are not people I am friends with. They're not people I would probably ever be friends with. The characters are all white. No people of color in this town at all. Everybody's the same class. Even people who have jobs that should not give them any money live in houses that are magnificent. Wow, just some place you got. I was subletting from a friend of mine, and then I just kind of took it over. Every house is decorated to the nth degree in ways that are so over the top, usually. Once we figure out a theme, we have to create the interior and exterior design, integrate the Christmas trees. Trees? Plural? Yes, plural. I'm thinking four, maybe five. Five trees? Oh, yeah, you'll see. For me, I love the anthropological whiteness of those films. Like, I'm pretty sure there are white people who live like that. I don't know any of those white people. I find find it fascinating for that reason. I can really watch it from an outsider perspective, I think, that also makes it so much easier for me to appreciate. Because none of the traumas of the holidays that are really played up in these movies apply to me in any way whatsoever. When you are constantly in people's trauma, if you are constantly trying 
to address very horrible injustices to people. I don't think you want your movies to be about those things, too. My work has always been directly with people who are incarcerated, whether it has been advocacy on their behalf or campaigns to do sentence commutations, projects where we've been trying to close particular prisons. I've been writing to prisoners for the last over 20 years. I have family who's incarcerated, so I have people who are criminalized in my life in various ways. I don't want to think about oppression, trauma, violence all the time. I don't think it's healthy. I don't think it's sustainable. I don't think you can keep doing the work I do if that's how you live. I mean, it's pretty simple. These movies are so ridiculous and bonkers often that I'm just like, there's nothing to take seriously here. Okay, my favorite Hallmark Channel movie that's a recent one is this movie called Miss Christmas. That's a bonkers-ass movie. The protagonist in that, she is obsessed with Christmas. I mean, she loves Christmas. She's, her whole entire year revolves around Christmas. It's the most beautiful time of year, filled with hope and magic, twinkling Christmas trees. This woman's name is Holly. I'm like, come on. Her dog's name is Rudy. Look at that bow looks good on you. Oh, my God. I mean, can it be more perfect? There's just so much perfect. And this movie is so optimistic. It is constant, constant cheerfulness. Her job. Holly is the creative director for the Radcliffe Center, and each year she finds, transports, and facilitates decorating Chicago's Christmas tree. It's a dream job come true. Some, I don't know, crane or something destroys the tree. Uh, it's ruined. How are you going to find another tree and get it here and get it decorated in time for the tree lighting ceremony in 10 days? This is the perfect bonkers situation of a Hallmark Channel movie. This woman's only job seems to be to get the perfect tree. That's her whole job. This woman does not have a backup tree. And she's got an assistant. So I don't know what they do. I am Miss Christmas. This is what I do, and I'm going to figure this out. But she ends up going to some place called Claws, Wisconsin, because she gets a letter from a little kid named Joey. Dear Miss Christmas. Who wants her to come and see their tree. That's like the most amazing tree on the planet. The conflict is that Sam, who is the father of Joey, who wrote the letter, he does not want to give the tree away because it was a tree his mother planted and loved. It's just not for sale. I'm not asking to buy it. It's donation-based, and most people are happy to do it. They're not getting paid by the Radcliffe Horrible Center that's exploiting these people to cut down this 80-year-old tree. Sam, if you were to say yes, your whole family would get to go to Chicago on an all-expenses-paid trip. They're in Claus, Wisconsin. They could, it's not, this is not Hawaii they're going to. They're going across the way to Chicago to get to see this tree. That's their payment for cutting down this beautiful, timeless tree. Lord have mercy. Okay, Christmas is about opening our hearts, right? So I just have to open his heart to the idea. Her job for the whole entire movie is to convince him to do that. And basically by falling in love with him, she gets the tree. Why aren't you looking at the tree? Because I finally found something to look at the way you look at that tree. So she's the perfect example of, like, 
no family comes finds her true love is now leaves her job in the city comes to claus wisconsin and will end up living in claus wisconsin and becoming a christmas tree farmer like i mean come on you know that's the, that's hallmark there is nothing in a hallmark channel movie that i aspire to i don't want to live in those houses in those towns I don't find, like, the fireplace warming, toasty, and hopeful. I'm not aspiring to a single thing in those movies, and that's what's so refreshing. There's just nothing I want in them, which I think is a relief. Wow. Just never imagined there could be so much magic in Christmas. To me, it's, like, strangely calming. And every time I dreamed about it, this is always what I dreamed it should be. I love the predictability of the movie. I know how every single movie is going to end. Where else can you say that in your life or in the world? Mariam Kaba is the founder and director of Project Nia, which is an organization devoted to ending youth incarceration. You can follow her tweets about prison reform and about Hallmark Christmas movies at Prison Culture. Studio 360's Evan Chung produced our story. And before anybody writes in to tell us, we know that this holiday season, the Hallmark Channel presented its first Christmas movies with black lead characters. Peace on Earth, goodwill to all, and that's it for this episode. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chum. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. Thank you all for listening, and have a happy new year. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, (laughs) The Noid, how a pizza ad character sent one man over the edge. It's one of those things where you hear the story, it's sensational, it's bizarre, and myth becomes fact. The rise and fall of the Domino's Pizza mascot, plus some of our other favorite stories from 2018, next time on Studio 360.